Well, I need to jump right into it this morning. I have a lot of material to cover, even though we're just going to finish verse 1. This is <laughs> Hebrews verse 1b, and, uh, but all these things are important. We want to talk about it. And um, so, yeah, if you'd please stand. I'm going to read the same passage to you. Hopefully, by the time we're done with all this, you'll have the passage memorized and perfected. I'll be in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. The author says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Father, again, we thank you for your word. It confronts us where we dislike most. But Lord, as we've talked about, you want to make us whole. You want to make us pleasing in your sight. You are holy, and you want us to be holy. And so, Lord, I pray that as you confront us with your word, with your will, that, Lord, we would not be in objection, but we would be tender and receptive to all that your spirit would say to us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says. And so, Lord, open our hearts, our ears today, and speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Hey, Larry, would you mind dimming these lights a little bit on my pale face, please? (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Okay. All right, well, last week we observed that the scope of Hebrews 12 uh, is the perfecting of the saint by Jesus. Okay, that's trying to make us whole. Scripture tells us that the, the objective that God has is to make us more like Christ. And to make us more like Christ, a lot of things about us have to go. How many guys have found that out the more that you walk with the Lord? The more he's not going to conform to you. And, and cannot, but your life, your thinking, your words, your behavior, your habits must more and more conform to him. And chapter 12 reveals the, the unfriendly method by which God perfects us. Uh, it's not pleasant, as we'll see further on in the text. Uh, it, it is what it is. Uh, it's the same pattern that we see throughout the scriptures, And uh, God has no intention of changing his method for those of us that live in Western culture. He's just just not going to do that. Last week, we we started looking at the author's encouragement to these these Jewish believers who were being persecuted for their faith in Christ. And he wanted his audience to consider the, the great number of people from chapter 11 who by faith had endured great suffering, even martyrdom. And uh, by faith, those people had experienced God's faithfulness and his goodness through all their trials. 
And I think what's important for us to recognize and understand is that God's faithfulness to his people in the past creates a pattern for how faithful he'll be to his people today and in the future. Okay? We look back to that to be encouraged for today. Yep. God is faithful to his own. And the image that uh, is presented by the author in Hebrews 12, as we've already talked about, is of those ancient believers surrounding every subsequent generation of believers in the same way that football fans gather at the Super Bowl to cheer on their team, okay? But the sporting event, uh, though, is compared to a long-distance race that the author is telling us it's, it's going to require endurance and discipline and focus. It's no sprint, as many of you have found out, but it is more like a marathon, and we have to have focus. And we've said already that at the finish line is Christ. He is both the inspiration and he is the prize. He's the reward. If you've read Philippians 3, Paul talks about the reward. And it's Jesus. Okay, it's Jesus. It's knowing him. It's being conformed to him. It's running to him. And they run to Jesus for his glory because he ran before them when he pioneered the way of salvation by his death and his resurrection. So they look to him for strength because he alone can make them whole. So the author is saying to us as well that we must look to our champion just as they did. But in order to run well, the author exhorted us to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us so we can run with endurance the race that is set before us. And last week, we considered the, the difference, the distinction between weight and sin. Weight being those things or habits, behaviors, hobbies that are not explicitly forbidden by God. They're not sinful by themselves. But when we neglect our Christian duties in order to indulge in those things, they become sin for us. And more often than not, they become destructive for others, especially those in our family, but as we look at the scriptures, we understand that it eventually affects our associations and then society as a whole. So as you identify weight in your life that competes with your affections for Christ and, and any devotion to him, to his will, the author says, lay it aside just as you would a garment that entangles your legs and keeps you from running. Okay, that's really the picture there of laying aside something. So shake it off. And for most of us, we just need to make, stop making excuses. And so I've learned, and I, I think I'm learning more. It doesn't mean that I like it, but, and that's people pointing it out to me. I would much rather have self-discovery. How about you guys? <laughs> but you know, if your spouse or a friend, the best one is if a child points it out to you. Don't get defensive. Don't sugarcoat it. Take it to heart. Maybe ask another friend who won't leave you any excuses. And then cry out to God for his grace so you can drop the weight so that you can run with endurance. Amen? Yeah, get rid of it. But the author also talks about the sin that so easily ensnares us. So this morning we're going to talk about sin. It's a lovely discussion. 
And uh, I will possibly offend someone today, uh, not intentionally, but that's just what sin does to the rebellious heart. Okay? Confrontation. Sin is anything that God clearly condemns because it's contrary and it's offensive to his character in whose image we were created and whose image we are to reflect in this world. Sin, then, is an act of rebellion. Everybody say rebellion. Rebellion. Isn't that liberating? It just is what it is. Sin is rebellion. And it's sin that the author says so easily entangles us or ensnares us. It's tripping us up. Now, easily ensnares. How many of you guys like that to be said about you? It means you're a wimp. It means that I'm a wimp. It's a commentary on humanity's moral weakness, which we inherited from Adam, whose sin was passed down to us from one generation to the next. An inherent sin explains all the woes in our world and the moral weakness in us. You guys, we're not only victims of the world, we are perpetrators in it. We are. We're contributors. There's evil that is out there, and there's evil that's in here, okay, in here, a seed of rebellion that honors no boundaries. We're sinners by nature with a propensity for evil. How many of you guys recognize that? Just a few of you. How many recognize that in others? <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> Our propensity, and that's why we're so easily ensnared, we're entangled by it. And the truth is, if it was not for God's grace, this empowering force from him, there would just be no hope. So what sin easily, or as the author says, so easily entangles us, you and myself? You know, Paul says that sin is common to man and that no one is really tempted by anything unique. I hear people say that a lot. You just don't understand Oh, no, I, I do. I do. And if by some strange circumstance I don't, I probably know a thousand people that do. Okay. Yeah. Nobody's tempted uniquely. But there are some sins that are more common than others, some more or less grievous than others. Among the more common and definitely grievous among Christians is porn. Looking with lust, of which Jesus says is to commit adultery, in the heart. Now, I think I would be amiss if I did not address it because it ensnares so many, not just in our culture, but in the church among believers. So let me illustrate the ease at which this particular sin ensnares people. Fightthenewdrug.org reports the following. Porn sites receive more regular traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined each month, according to the Huffington Post. 35% of all internet downloads are porn-related, according to WebRoot. At least 30% of all data transferred across the internet is porn-related, according to the Huffington Post. NBC News reported that the global porn industry is a $97 billion industry. And the world's largest free porn site received over $33.5 
billion visits during 2018, according to Pornhub Analytics. Nothing says easily ensnares like 33.5 billion visits to one website, and nothing says enslaved like $97 billion being poured into the industry. That is astounding, especially when so much porn is free. That is amazing. There are people in this room, both men and women, who have struggled or are struggling with porn. You know, some by the grace of God have been delivered from it and are running again, and they're running well, while others remain entangled in it and you cannot run. No shackled slave can. No shackled slave can run. Okay. If you are a believer, you feel cut off from Christ because of it. You feel dirty. You feel unworthy. You feel it. If you are married, it's affecting intimacy with your spouse if it's not destroying your marriage. It's affecting your relationship with your children. You struggle with shame and guilt, if not depression and or aggression. And you feel helpless to overcome it. And some may be hardened or fooled by the deceitfulness of sin and think that their sin affects nobody else. That's deception. There's no such thing as private sin that has no impact on others. A hard lesson that Adam learned, of which we all suffer. Okay? A tragic lesson that Achan learned in Joshua 6 and 7. 36 men died because of his secret sin. Your secret sin. God warned, your sin will find you out. So don't be a fool. The consequences of your sin, they're not confined to you. And John... Don or Danae, however you say his name, he actually wrote, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as any manner of thy friend or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind." And therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. You're a part of the whole. You cannot sin in secret. It's affecting you and it's affecting those around you. Especially in the body of Christ, no sin is in isolation or in a vacuum. Now I'm not talking about someone who stumbles onto porn and then one, on one day and then runs like mad to escape it. I'm talking about the person who has gone into the mire and they can't get out of it. They can't get out. You want to be free, you want to run, but it seems hopeless. Well, know that you are not the first to be held captive by it. You are not. And many before you are now enjoying freedom as you can and as you need to be, as you can be. Okay. The scriptures have a remedy First, you need to understand that God, he desires your repentance so that you can be restored to fellowship with him. He's zealous for your repentance. He's zealous for it. And then you must look to Jesus. Scripture here says that he is the perfecter of our faith. You have a malady in your faith. And only Christ can 
remove it and bring it to wholeness. He's the only one that can fix it. And then you must confess your sins to the Lord, 1 John 1, 9. Familiar verse, if you confess your sins, he is holy and just to forgive you and to cleanse you, and to cleanse you. When I talk to men and women about porn, the one thing that always comes across is dirtiness. I feel filthy, and you are. But Christ is the only one that can cleanse you. You need to be cleansed, so confess. Confess. Paul says in Romans 13, 14 that you need to get rid of anything that would cause you to stumble. He says, make no provision for the flesh. No provision. Don't provide it with any satisfaction. And then I would encourage you to confess your sins to a trusted, mature believer who will pray for you and who loves you enough to accept nothing short of your repentance. You must do it. And pray without ceasing. Keep your face in God's word. Keep your life surrounded by God's people. And you have to be courageous, and you can't give up. Okay, you can't give up. It's time to run free. Let's, let's look at some other sins that easily ensnare us. Uh, some of us are angry. Some of us are impatient, and we're intolerable to our family members, our spouse, and our children. They love us, but it's hard to like us when things don't go our way. It's hard to like us when things don't go our way. Anger and impatience, you know, they're usually a symptom of, of something else. Something else. You know, for parents, anger often arises because we have not trained and disciplined our children according to the scriptures. That's the truth. And so when the children misbehave and are disrespectful, we get angry. We get frustrated. Now, their bad behavior is not the reason we get angry how we wish that it was, but it's not the reason. It's just when we get angry. Our children are not the cause of our anger. They're just the best excuse for anger. And little people just can't defend themselves. Yeah. Jesus said that anger and other sins, they come from the heart. So when our children are naughty, that's when we feel justified to unleash it, to release it. They're a good excuse but it's not a godly response, it's sinful, which many of us are entangled in, okay? But the truth is we shouldn't get angry and impatient, we should apologize for sinning against our children and then get back to parenting and living by example. Please say amen. Yeah. Now, if you lack biblical knowledge in regard to parenting, or if you, if you lack the skills needed to train your kids accordingly, there are some veterans in this room, there are, who love to help with that. If you don't know who they are, come talk to me, I'll point them out to you. If they don't want to talk to you, I'll rebuke them and then I'll send you back to them. <laughs> okay? This is what we do as the family of God. But whatever you do, you need to humble yourself, you need to repent, and you need to get some assistance. You need to get beyond this in your life so you can run. Anger is destructive. What about anger or bitterness between spouses? Paul tells husbands, do not be embittered toward your wife. Yeah. It's, 
usually a symptom of one or more biblical roles in the marriage being violated or unfulfilled, usually. I've never met a pleasant woman who disrespects her husband. And if she's disrespectful in public, she must be unbearable at home. Also, I've never been able to tolerate a Christian man who complains about his wife when he's supposed to be understanding and honoring her. That just, just bugs me. You know, one or both of these issues contributes to some serious problems in the home with anger and bitterness at the top. You know, whenever someone in the marriage is not honoring the roles prescribed by God, they fail to honor God, and then they become a curse to their spouse. They do. 1 Peter 3.7 says that our prayers are hindered because of it. How many think you can run with hindered prayers? Grace withheld is disastrous. Grace withheld is disastrous. But every couple that lives according to God's design for marriage is blessed and happy together. There are no exceptions. Zero. God knows what he's doing. There are no, no exceptions. Now, I think more than ever, Christian couples are ignorant about God's will for their marriage. They've been trained, they've been counseled, but not by the scriptures, they've been counseled by our culture. Now, I don't know why anyone would take counsel from our culture. It, it astounds me that we would even consider that there's anything virtuous coming out of it. Anything at all. It's a tragic mess. Tragic. You know, others are informed well enough, but they're rebellious, which makes for one miserable marriage. Miserable marriage. But if ignorance haunts your relationship, you know, you need to study God's will for your marriage and then get things on track. How enjoyable it will be for you, for both of you. You know, you should start in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. <clears throat> and with the help of God's grace, obey what you read. Give it a shot. Yeah. Then go to 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. And with the help of God's grace, obey what you learned there. Then go to 1 Corinthians 11 to understand God's order in marriage. Then study 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5 for sexual intimacy. And there's always the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It's not a marriage passage. But I promise that if you're applying those principles to your marriage, happiness will ensue. Okay, yeah. Now, I'm not one of those pastors who, you know, makes excuses for God's word in regard to marriage roles. Uh, most of you know that. I don't try to water them down in order to be sensitive to our culture. Uh, I think that's a mistake. Those who diminish the authority of God's word in regard to the most treasured institution of God, which is marriage, they're going to pay a big price. You know, the passages on marriage are not there for private interpretation. They're not. The passages are crystal clear. Any objection to them, let's just be honest, is rebellion. It's rebellion, and it's hurtful to the marriage. Now, this does not negate the concern we should have nor the protection we should provide for those in abusive relationships. Okay. But I'm not so foolish as to dilute God's word or provide exemptions where he offers none. I'm not that stupid. Okay. I'm just not. 
If you want to enjoy marriage, you must honor God's word. It's the only prescription. It's the only prescription for marital holiness and happiness, or as Peter said, to being heirs together of the grace of life. Yeah. You know, Shandy and I, we come from two very different backgrounds. We just don't look very different from one another. <laughs> but much of our backgrounds were, in, were very much in opposition to one another. She was raised in a home from a culture with, where the wife rules over the husband, something I didn't realize until after we got married. <laughs> I was raised by a woman who was intentional about raising a man, something Shandy didn't realize until after we got married. Shandy had many cultural habits that I didn't understand. I had many that she didn't understand. She was raised Roman Catholic with overtones of Hawaiian and Filipino culture. I still struggle to take my shoes off at the door. It's been, we've been married almost 21 years. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> so she was raised Roman Catholic. After my parents divorced, my mom raised us in evangelical churches. And Shandy grew up with two parents in the home where the father was engaging and nurturing. I only knew one parent in the home. I really had no concept of a father, concept of a husband. Okay? The list goes on and on. But what makes our story success is that from the time of our conversion to Christ, we view the scriptures as God's infallible word and that it had final authority over our lives. We believed it. So when it came to struggles in our marriage, especially in regard to our roles, we knew that obedience to God's word was the only way that we could reap his blessing. And so we went after it. We submitted to his word. And I think Shandy enjoys being married to me. <laughs> it's only because of his word that we enjoy being heirs together of the grace of life. And you know what? We expect it to get better the more that we submit to the scriptures. We expect it to get better. Now, if you know that you have withheld obedience to God in your marriage, you are not running well. At best, you're limping down the track with a self-inflicted wound. Okay? You're not running well. It's time to lay aside your own will and exchange it for Christ's. It's time to take him at his word and trust him with your marriage. Peter tells wives to obey without any fear because the Lord is good. 1 Peter 3.6 Peter tells husbands to obey with understanding because the Lord knows what he's doing. 1 Peter 3.7 Now if you lack knowledge regarding you know, the biblical way to do marriage, come talk to me or one of my elders. But whatever you do, don't listen to our culture. And don't listen to anybody that waters down God's word in this regard. It will end in failure. Okay? Yeah. God's wisdom always wins. Uh, there's other sins worth addressing. You know, pride and vanity, lack of self-control, substance abuse, fornication. You know, Paul has all kinds of great and long lists of things that we fall into. If fornication is a lethal force in our society... 1 Corinthians 6 says that no fornicator will inherit the kingdom of God. I think that makes it some, something worth mentioning. Fornication is any kind of sexual activity that is not between a husband and his wife. You know, God designed sex for marriage. 
Marriage is a covenant between one biological man and one biological woman and with their God. Something that concerns me deeply is, you know, the sexual purity of our young people, our children, our children. You know, fornication among youth is intentionally being normalized in our society. Something that has haunted me lately is the new sex ed curriculum that's being passed through the Washington legislation. It's nothing shy of child pornography that is being endorsed by the state and meant to indoctrinate our children into every sexual deviance of our culture. I've viewed it. Yeah, it's crazy. 20 years ago, this would have been passed off as a conspiracy theory, but it's here, it's real, and it's happening. It's happening. Okay. I've seen samples of the material. It's, it's cartoon child pornography. The stuff I looked at had the, all the genitalia blotted out, so don't worry. But it's using graphic pictures... It's an instruction manual on how to please oneself sexually, how to participate in all forms of sexual activity with as many kinds of partners as possible. It glorifies all things same-sex and transsexual. Listen carefully. They want your kids to fornicate in the most perverse manner. They want them to. It makes a society feel less icky when everybody's doing it. They want them to. If you want your kids to run well for Jesus and avoid the things that will destroy their soul, I believe it's time to seek alternative forms of education. Okay. Lay it aside before it ensnares your kids. You know, the public school system is no longer an educational institution. It's all about indoctrination, indoctrinating kids into secular culture with the agenda to root out all Judeo-Christian morals. It's the agenda. I would encourage you for the sake of your children to make the necessary sacrifice in order to get them into a private Christian school or consider homeschooling. That would be my encouragement to you. Now, there are many people in this church that could help you go either direction. Okay, yeah. Our children are being set up for destruction. And like us, like me, they don't need any assistance from the world to be ungodly. They don't need any help being lustful or rebellious. They need their parents to guide them, to protect them, to ensure they have the best chance of running for Jesus when they leave your home. They need you. If you wouldn't educate your children using pornographic material or any other material that was anti-Christian, you should not allow anyone else to do it. Yeah. Jesus said, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were tied around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Matthew 18, 6. Do not think that he's kidding. Yeah. The curriculum encourages fornication. It will entangle your kids before they start running. Okay. Let me address one more issue. It's the issue of pride. I know it's irrelevant here, but... Let's, let's just take a shot at it. The sin of pride is pretty vogue among Christians, uh, including Christian leaders. And pride, you know, really cripples the person who's proud, and, and it often causes others to stumble. It's very interesting. Uh, unlike many other sins, pride can manifest itself in many different ways. 
And it's called many different things uh, until you recognize it for what it is and you go, hold on a second, that's pride. That's pride. And pride, we might say, is thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Something, you know, Paul warned about in Romans 12. In fact, he told the Philippians that we should rather in, uh, consider others to be more important than ourselves. I don't like doing that. <laughs> Philippians 2. Pride is the elevation of yourself, uh, your views, your theology, your philosophy, your church affiliation, your achievements, your parenting, your ministry, your diet, your shoes, and whatever else. It's, it's the elevation of any of those things to where you look down your nose at others with some level of derision or contempt, whether vocalized, published, or secretly held in your mind. That's pride. Now, pride should not be mistaken for you know, believing that you're right and that someone else is wrong. That's not pride. It's not a sin to believe that what you believe is right and that what someone else believes is wrong. There's no sin in believing that your philosophy is better than someone else's. And the sin of pride manifests itself when you look down on someone else because of who they are, because of what they do, or because of what they don't do. Yeah. You know, your position or philosophy, it, it may be better than someone else's. But by virtue of your position or the practice of your philosophy, you do not have the high ground to hold anyone in contempt. Yeah. I think the craziest thing about our own pride or the pride of others that we uh, admire is that we mistaken it for piety or virtue. We are so slippery in the way that we interpret things or justify things. Yeah. We think I'm right on this issue and therefore I'm righteous. Yeah. And we elevate ourselves rather than the position. Or when a person we admire assassinates an opponent's character rather than correcting their position, we excuse it as an admirable defense of the truth. It's yucky. That's why I don't listen to debates very often. I just, it's troubling. According to Jesus, addressing someone's character should begin in private. Unless you're a popular Christian leader, you can do it wherever you want and get praised for it. Okay. And Jesus also says it should be done with love and humility. Paul repeats the same in Galatians 6. Paul said that a servant of the Lord must not quarrel but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25. You know, it is the duty of the Christian leader to correct those in opposition, but be careful defending a Christian leader who does not abide by his biblical mandate to do it with humility. Yeah. If he fails in this regard, he also needs corrected. He needs to repent. And if he does not repent, he's disqualified for the ministry. The Apostle Paul says, I think his opinion is fairly applicable. What do you think? Just because you're right doesn't make you righteous. And if your pride is not in check, if my pride is not in check, we need to watch out. We've got to lay it aside. We cannot run with pride. Let me give you some other examples. Uh, you may know there, there are many different approaches to evangelism. You know, the method by which you share the gospel with others. 
There's the Roman road, the way of the master, friendship evangelism, the bridge gap method, a host of others. I heard it one the other day that didn't make any sense to me, but I'll revisit it and see. But what amazes me is the level of pride associated with those who use them. Yeah, everyone thinks their method is superior to everyone else's, and then they get this superiority mentality. I've seen it with every single one of them. It's hilarious or sad. The funny thing is that all of them contain biblical truth and a portion of each method can be observed in the scriptures. I found that certain personalities are typically, you know, they're attracted to one or the other method simply because of how the method was presented to them or by whom it was presented. I've also observed that every personality adapts each method to fit their personality. An extrovert will intensify a method so he can be assertive, while the introvert will take the same method and tone it down so he can be mild which I think is perfect, by the way, as long as no biblical truth is compromised. But in the end, often, it's not the method that is actually being glorified, it's our personality. And we all know that our personality is superior to everyone else's. You know, in My Fair Lady, it's one of the only musicals that I can tolerate. (laughs) But we all have that same complex as the guy, I can't remember his name, Higgins, when he sings his, his ridiculous song, Why Can't a Woman Be More Like a Man? But in the end, he ends with, Why Can't a Woman Be More Like Me? Why can't everybody else just be more like me? I'm so much better than you. <laughs> yeah, it's all a cloak for pride. Yeah. The same thing happens with parenting. You know, parents... It should uphold every biblical principle of parenting. Isn't that true? Are there any biblical principles, commands to parents that we should ignore? None. We should uphold all of them. But the application of those principles is not as concrete as many people think. Not at all. Again, methods are adapted by personality, which is great, as long as there's no compromise. The problem arises, again, when we look down our nose at those who apply the principles differently... And in false piety, we feel sorry for them or have contempt. We're proud. That same thing occurs in theology. (laughs) And historically, the church has been divided over it, but it's not theology that has divided the church. It's man's pride. It's man's pride. We don't just think we're right about theology and everyone else is wrong. We think we're better than everyone else. I've been there. And I visit the place from time to time. (laughs) It's no secret. I sternly hold to my theological convictions. And I see any measure of wavering as pure weakness. Which is all fine. But I have no right to look down my nose with contempt for anyone that differs with me. It's okay for me to despise other theological positions. And I do. (laughs) But there's no justification for calling names for being condescending or holding others in contempt. I reserve the right to disagree and to do it robustly. But belittling those in opposition, let's not just say childish. It's sinful. It's pride. Yeah. And if I want to run well as a leader, if you want to run well as a Christian, pride has to be laid aside. It's sinful, it's divisive, it's destructive. It doesn't serve the glory of God. 
It cannot. So, be suspect of your own self-righteousness. Be suspect. It's there. It's there. And be receptive of those who accuse you of pride. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are or were, but you should consider it. In fact, investigate with others and say, am I or was I proud? Have you heard that old saying about being a donkey? Somebody calls you, I can't use the old language because someone will leave the church over it. (laughs) But you should kind of, okay. But if they call you that a second time, have you heard this? You should consider it more deeply. If somebody else calls it to you a third time, you should buy a saddle. (laughs) It's probably true. (laughs) Ask others if you're being self-righteous. And most of all, pray that God would help you identify every trace of pride in your life. It's there. You just need help finding it. How many guys have found that God is honest? Guys, is your wife honest? Don't be afraid to ask her. Yeah. If you want an accurate evaluation of yourself, you should go to the scriptures, see what God says. A man that we probably shouldn't have expected it from, or many men, was a man like Job. He had a sobering experience. He said, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I abhor myself. Repent in dust and ashes. Paul, he was confronted with reality when he said, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Romans 7, 18. Are you better than Paul? Then nothing good dwells in you either. Or me. Peter objected to the Lord's company because of his own sinfulness. He said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Luke 5, 8. None of this is false humility. This is just man seeing himself in reality. Isaiah had a similar encounter in Isaiah 6. Woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people with unclean lips. And never will you find God in the scriptures commending someone for elevating themselves. Don't beat your chest at God, okay? Rather, James says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. James 4.10. Scripture says that everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And though they join forces, none will go unpunished. Proverbs 16.5. Yeah. I, perhaps nothing reminds the Lord more of the devil than pride itself. Yeah. But humility was the prevailing characteristic of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. In whose image we are to be conformed to. Now, of course, we could have talked about many, many more sins, but I'm out of time. (laughs) But whatever sin you have a weakness for, that which entangles you so easily, it trips you up. It needs to be laid aside so that you can run with endurance. And the best thing to do for you is to own your sin, to confess it, to cry out to God for grace, to make full repentance, and then get back in the race. Amen? Yeah. Next week, we'll talk about looking to Jesus for strength and so that we avoid becoming weary and discouraged in the race. 
remembering that this is a marathon. We don't bolt to the finish line and then take a break. We just bolt. Okay? We just bolt. Make a run for it. And um, we need God's grace to do it. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. <clears throat> if you have any questions about what I've talked about, if you're angry with me, um, John Wiley would love to speak with you. <laughs> no, um, I will have a friendly conversation with you. Uh, I can disagree fairly well, I think. And, um, but whatever we do, let's get together, let's pray together, and let's agree with God's word. Amen? By the way, confession, it really means to agree with God. So, let's pray. Well, Lord, um, your church is filled with a bunch of sinners. And every single one of us are in need of your grace. Lord, grace to identify sin in our lives. Grace to be confronted with sin in our lives. Grace to repent. Lord, and grace to run. Lord, there is no sin in this room that you cannot recover someone from, that you will not forgive. And so, Lord, I pray that every person in this room would, would, would own their sin for what it is. They would confess it. And Lord, they would cry out to you. And they would experience your goodness. Lord, you desire fellowship with us in spite of how nasty we've become. Help us to see you in your favor and to go to you in faith, trust you. Lord, help us to read your word and take it at face value. Help us to obey it and reap the rewards of it, Lord. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. Lord, we do desire to be conformed more to your image. But without these things, it cannot happen. So Lord, come and be the perfecter of our faith, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Love you guys.